right, uh, so Risto here with George Mason University. Uh, we're talking to Justin Hagel today. Uh, Justin is an assistant professor at Old Dominion University near Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, so we're continuing to do a couple different things with the podcast. Uh, today's episode is about uh, APE, so Adapted Physical Education Programs, and more specifically about doctoral programs in APE. Uh, Justin is uh, one of the APE doctoral programs. He's, he's in one of them at ODU. Uh, and teaches there, does a tremendous amount of research there. And this podcast is basically a conversation between us where I kind of try to find out uh, and guide Justin into answering questions about adapted PE, but more in a conversational fashion um, and, you know, give some information that maybe a new student could pursue a doctorate in a field of APE with some information. Um, So, a lot of these questions and this conversation comes from a very naive place, uh, an uninformed place, because I've never applied to a doctoral program in APE. Um, and I know that there are some good ones out there, and that's where I kind of refer people to. Uh, but I'm not entirely uh, entirely sure of the process t- uh, to get there, and maybe some of our listeners are in the, in the same spot. So the goal of, is really just to kind of understand APE programs, what it takes to get into doctoral programs. And um, we're here with an expert. So, um, you know, why don't you, why don't you just get us started and just kind of you know, maybe give us your story. How'd you, how'd you get into APE? How'd you get to Old, Old Dominion? Where'd you go to school? All that kind of good stuff. Sure. Yeah. So thanks again for having me um, on the podcast, Risto. And before I say anything about myself, congratulations on the upcoming award at Shape America that you're receiving the uh, 2019 Mabel Lee Award for Young Professionals. I've sounds, heard good people have won this in the past. So Sounds sounds very fancy. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I, I think it's a good honor. Uh, very competitive, I've heard. So Yeah. I'm very happy to get it. Thank you. And um, so... Or getting into the field, um, I did my undergraduate degree uh, in PE, like a lot of people do who come through to adapted PE, and I did that at the college at Brockport. And um, at, uh, when I was finishing up, I had a very fortunate conversation with a faculty member there uh, named Kathy Houston Wilson, who um, asked me what I was going to do afterwards. And at the time, uh, timing just seemed to work really well, but she was an interim chair for one reason or another that I don't remember. But she had the ability to offer me a graduate assistantship, and when selecting which program to do at Brockport, um, the Adapted PE Master's program there was very well known, still is very well known for producing high-quality people. Uh, the faculty there are um, among you know, the best-known faculty in the world, with Jill Winnick and Lauren Lieberman and uh, Kathy again, and Mike Kozib was there at the time as well, and so there were a lot of APE folk. Um, didn't know too much about the field myself at the time when I signed up, uh, which is uncommon for a lot of people going into master's programs. Um, I, I went into the program based on the reputation of the program. Um, and at the time, I was going through a lot of uh, life changes and uh, personal type uh, changes that uh, I needed to kind of deal with. And one of the ways I dealt with it was diving into work. And so I submerged myself into the program. I took advantage of pretty much every opportunity you could as a master's student. I you know, volunteered at camps and went to conferences and did an internship at a school for the blind and that kind of uh, socialized me as some of our friends in PE might might like to say into the field quite well and ever since then I've just identified as an adapted PE person and so after that I 
went to New York uh, City area, taught in Queens and New York City's Department of Education for three years in a um, school for kids with autism. Wonderful experience, but always knew that I was going to leave shortly thereafter to pursue a PhD. Um, and then I ended up going to The Ohio State University to work with Dave Perrette as my advisor, and I ended up working with Sam Hodge quite a bit as well as a, as a mentor. And so I noticed I, you said The Ohio State University. Hey, you know, that's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this. So in your undergraduate at Brockport, how many AP classes did you have? Just one. Like, okay. like 90% of programs around the country, I took one uh, AP course during my undergrad. And I, and I feel like that's very common. It's the same here at Mason. And, you know, we had a conversation yesterday in my secondary methods class, and one of the students said, you know, I don't feel comfortable enough based on my one short field experience and one class. And they're, you know, like some of them are actually scared, you know, to go out and work in AP. So it's interesting that you, after one class, then you're like, okay, I'm going to go get my master's in APE. Yeah, well, and I think right. a lot of people do that. I think people like fall in love with it after that one class. Um, mm-hmm. but, but like I said, for me, it, it, I, I wasn't in love with adapted PE after one class. Um, I went into the program based on the reputation of the program and knowing that it would uh, widen my marketability. So I had, at the time, no thoughts about a PhD. I was just going to go through a master's program and then go do something else afterwards. Um, and you need was- a master's pro- master's degree in New York City to teach or in New York, right? To teach? That's correct. Yeah. So I needed a master's either way. Right. So you're like, okay, I might as well go to the best reputable program in APE, get it, go in. And you taught, uh, was it a public school in New York City? It was PS uh, Q255 in, uh, in New York City's Department of Education. And it is specifically for students with autism. Yeah, so in New York City's Department of Education, there's a district called District 75, and District 75 is only a self-contained schools for kids with disabilities, and I worked in one of those schools in Queens, and we actually had, I think, six or seven different sites. So we were like one floor or a hallway in six or seven different buildings around Queens. So you did a lot of traveling from school to school to school, is that correct? No, not me. I, I was designated to one building, so our school okay. had five or six APE teachers and we would meet like two times a year, but we would work in these different, we work in parallel in different buildings. Got it. Got it. And is it common for an APE teacher to be in one place or have you heard of more? Cause I know the, the APE teachers that I know of have a lot of, you know, they might be working two or three schools and going in, stopping in instead of staying at one. Yeah, so there, there's a few different types of adapted PE teachers out there, and so the type I was was the like in-house, basically a PE teacher for a school uh, for kids with disabilities. This is the same model that you'll see at residential schools for the blind. Um, and then there's the itinerant model, where a APE teacher might be assigned a caseload of 30 kids across a dozen schools, or in some other areas, maybe 60 kids if they don't have very many APE specialists. Um, across a district, uh, and that those two jobs are very different jobs. And then there's a third uh, type of adapted PE specialist um, on the con- consultation model, and it's becoming less common. But here in Norfolk, we actually have a person who, rather than giving direct service, 
goes in and works uh, primarily as a coach and like provides uh, equipment and other type of help, like support to uh, the PE teachers to teach kids with disabilities in the general ed classes. And I realize those are probably very basic questions and AP scholars are like, oh my God, does Risto know anything about this? It's Uh, good. Here's like PE folk. A lot of PE folk don't really know a lot about adapted PE and the opposite's true as well. Right. And I, and I definitely realized that over the last few years and even having conversation with you back at Vapored on the, on the podcast that we recorded, I realized that, you know, we're in the same world, but we're in like parallel universes at the same time. Like I, I don't read the journals on a regular basis that, you know, you publish some of your articles in, but yet we do the same thing. Like it's in the same field, but I think there's some like split that occurred before I really got into this profession that I don't, I don't necessarily understand. And I need to kind of do a little bit more research on that apparently. Yeah, I think that that's before my time too, but I think you're spot on there. There must've been some split for some reason or another and PE folk and adapted PE folk just identify quite differently and we don't play in each other's sandbox as much. And uh, one, I had a, uh, a telling conversation, I think, with, with Kevin, Kevin Richards one day about uh, which adapted PE people PE people know about and like what scholars and adapted PE they might be able to name. And I think he could name two and they were two of like, you know, the more notable people in the field, but uh, two, two's quite few. Um, right. And I think if you were to ask like myself or other adapted PE people, it, it probably, you know, we probably name more because we have to pull more from your research to inform ours. But I don't know if we would name a dozen. Right. That's, that's interesting. So uh, let's go to o- the Ohio State University um, and see if you got a OH. IO, yeah. Oh, my, my everybody does it. Here. My department chair is from Ohio State and or the Ohio State University, and so she uh, OHs me every time I wear my uh, Ohio State hoodie. I love it. Uh, so you did your doctorate there. Uh, what was your dissertation on? What was your main course of study or projects that you were a part of there? Sure. So um, early in my dissertation pro- or in my PhD process, uh, in speaking with uh, Dave Peretta, who was my advisor. Um, we talked about a direction to take maybe in the first semester, and there was a kind of a dichotomous choice between working part, uh, specifically with children with autism because of my teaching background or, or working more with kids with visual impairments because of um, other things that I, I had done at the time. I was directing a sports camp up in Anchorage, Alaska for uh, kids with visual impairments, and I had done that for about a decade uh, before quitting. Um, so I, I made the selection to go with visual impairment for a few reasons, one of which being um, it's a population that I care pretty deeply about, but also there's not many people in the world doing research in that area. Um, and so I thought that I could you know, contribute quite a bit to that literature. Um, and so I made that choice, and then each of the projects I did were, were in that focus. And so you know, it, the, probably the best thing I did during my program was starting with a systematic review of literature on physical activity for kids that are blind or visually impaired. And that did two things. It got me a high quality pub, which is important for getting a job. And then it also informed me of pretty much everything that had happened in the, in the research in that area up until the time that I was starting to do research. And so that guided me to figure out what kind of uh, work to do to fill the gaps that had existed. 
and so you've continued on that uh, on that track because one of those one of the podcasts that we recorded was on uh, students with visual impairments. Is that kind of your main line of research? Are there other things that you're still doing that carried over from your doctoral studies, or have you moved on to other things as well? Um, I, I, I like to think that I, I do three different types of research, but it, it all focuses on people with disabilities. And most of the time I'm focusing on people with visual impairments. Um, I have done, I would say about 65% of the publications, 65 to 75% of the publications I've had are about people with visual impairments. And then the rest are maybe general disability related questions, maybe teacher attitudes toward disabilities and such. And then um, maybe a smaller percentage uh, on kids with autism or adults with autism. But um, yeah, I, I think the, the type of research that I've been getting into um, since then has been really three different things, as I had mentioned. Um, I, I really enjoy examining, like using qualitative methods, using phenomenological methods like we had talked about in the fall to explore what different types of physical activity experiences mean to people with visual impairments or people with disabilities in general. Um, and so we've probably done a dozen studies in that in that regard at this point. A lot of them focusing on integrated PE settings and what it's like to experience integrated PE and then different aspects of integrated PE. And so our last paper was about um, how people with visual impairments experience paraeducator support. And so what we ended up learning were a bunch of things that uh, teachers might expect a paraeducator to do. But from the perspective of people with disabilities, they actually didn't like those things. Like close proximity during PE seemed to um, help emerge perceptions of inability. Um, but PE teachers might look at a parent and say, why are you sitting on the side? How come you're not really close to your student? Um, so that was a really fun paper to do. So that's one type of uh, research that I tend to do. Another is I've been working with a team or a couple of teams recently uh, most notably with a, a Sean Healy up at University of Delaware, utilizing a couple of population-based data sets to look at trends in physical activity and different health behaviors of people with disabilities. Um, and so that's really fun and very different from um, the qualitative work that I do. Um, more macro, whereas the qualitative work is more in-depth. And then the third line, which is really just a line of research that kind of has to bridge the gap between the other two is I've done a series of survey studies uh, for adults with visual impairments on different factors that might influence physical activity behavior. Right. That was a lot of stuff. No, and well, it's a lot of stuff because <laughs> you've published a lot. And and I, and I didn't know this when I did that, sat down with the interview with you last time. And then I go back and look at a bio to copy paste some things to put a description for the podcast. And I went to look at your publications just to, you know, copy and paste the citation through. And I, I went on your ODU website and I, I found this number 44. That is the number of peer reviewed publications that you've published in the last two years. So 21 in 2018, and granted, this is like February, so that might not be up to date, so it might be more. We published 21 peer-reviewed journal articles in 2018. And then I was like, okay, it's all like funneled at the top. So let me check 2017. You have 23 articles published. And then I'm like, all right, that's insane. Nobody publishes 44 publications. And then I remembered we did a qualitative study with you uh, when we interviewed. And I'm going... 
wait, he's pushing qualitative work and those numbers. And I'm, so I'm looking at all these things, trying to dissect and trying to figure out how to do it. I'm thinking, okay, they might be in journals that are, you know, lesser quality journals. And I'm looking at, you know, European Physical Education Review, RQES, PESP, Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly. And I'm like, I'm super shocked. And I called Kevin. And I'm all, did you know Justin's published all these papers? And so how do you, how do you keep that level of publication? Because I'm, I'm super ask, impressed. Did you ask Kevin that too? Because <laughs> he's an animal. He is. He is as well. And I, I don't think he sleeps. So oh, I, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, like, uh, there's a couple of things. I, and thanks, man. I, you know, it's really flattering. I don't think about, yeah, uh, the number thing isn't really all that important to me. And, and I get accused occasionally of like pushing for numbers, which I think is I think there's people that do that. And but it's not really it's not really my life. Like, I'm not trying to get as many numbers as possible. That's not all that important to me. I think my motivation comes from having a whole bunch of questions and ideas that I want to pursue. And then, you know, I, I, there's no answers. So when I need an answer, we have to figure out how to find it, you know. And so that's that's kind of the motivation behind it. I, I'm also really fortunate because I work with a whole bunch of different research teams. So if you look through like the CV, like the list you're talking about, there's probably six or seven groups of people in there. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to, you know, provide a little bit of guidance in some of them or, you know, work with people who are equally as motivated and, and we just produce a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, and some of it's not in high quality stuff. A lot of it is, and I'm happy about that, but some of it's, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I know you're, you're being humble here, but a lot of them are led by you as first author and we can kind of move on from that piece, but I just wanted to highlight that and embarrass you on the podcast of, of the, I've developed deflection techniques with that, with that uh, particular note, because people have asked me that before. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's my job. I think one other thing, and this is something I, I told, I think I told my Dean this once because she had asked me a similar question and, you know, I, I come from a very blue collar family. And so like I wake up in the morning and I'm here at, uh, six twenty in the morning, and I work until like four, and then I go spend family time with my with my two daughters. And so, you know, every single day or five days a week, six days a week, every other week, I'm here, you know, working from six twenty until three thirty or four o'clock. And I think that 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 comes that's informed by you know my my family background, and I'm very grateful for that. Right. So then, how would you uh, how would you suggest somebody that you know, finishes an undergraduate degree, has that click, like, I, I love APE, what would be the path to get to a tenure track position or a professor position um, in, in academia? What would you recommend that they do? Master's sure. first? Yeah, teach first? There's, yeah, there's two paths, right? And, and you just noted them, right? So right after you, you finish your undergrad, and, and I don't I don't know how common it is for people who are in their undergrad to know, like, I want to go into a PhD program. Um, and I think some people who think they want to do that do tend to burn out before they even get there because they tend to be those hyper-passionate people that put all their their energy into everything they do. And so mm -hmm. that, you know, that has a high degree of burnout, I think, particularly in schools. And so 
Um, I think there's two paths. I think you can either teach first or go get a master's first. Um, I don't think either one is better than the other one. Um, and, and then once that process is finished, you kind of just flip-flop, right? So if you go teach first, then you get a master's after that. If you go to a master's degree first, then you go teach after that. Um, I would say most people will recommend, and this was recommended to me from Joe Winnick, who you know, is one of the legends in our field, um, to go teach for three years. And, and that's kind of the standard recommendation. And I think the reason for that is when you look at calls for tenure track positions, um, part, uh, mostly at teaching universities, which is where most of the APE faculty in the country work, it's going to say, you know, two to three years of teaching experience in the call. And so you're making yourself marketable for all of the jobs rather than just uh, research intensive jobs. Um, so I think as far as teaching is concerned, do that. And when it comes to the master's degree program, I think there are you know, a handful of universities in the country that are excellent at creating or informing um, high quality APE master's or students. Um, and, and I would target those, and a lot of those have um, grants, OSEP grants to help support students or other types of funding to support students. Um, I was told when I was going into my master's program that if, you, if people want you at the program, you shouldn't pay for it. And so I think that's something I tell people pretty regularly now as well. Do you feel comfortable sharing those a little, you know, what are the, what are the top master's programs or where do you know, where would you send people to uh, yeah. if, if an undergrad or a teacher who's been teaching for a few years calls you up and says, hey, where should I go? Where do you recommend? Where do you, where do you typically send them? Yeah, so, I mean, I've had that happen a few times since I've been here. I've only been here, you know, three, four years, four years now, but um, I've had a handful of teacher or students who have said, I want to become an APE teacher, where should I go? And then I've had students say, I want to become an APE faculty member, where should I go? Um, and I think those answers are different. And so um, when people want to be APE teachers, uh, the three recommendations I've made, at least recently, has been um, talk to Marty Block at UVA. He does an excellent job um, training master students. Um, go to Lacrosse, where Garth Timeson was. Uh, he retired about a month ago, but uh, go there because they tr they train excellent uh, adapted PE teachers. Or go to TWU where uh, Lisa Silman French and Susanna Rocco Dillon and Ron Davis are, and they train excellent master students. And so I've actually sent uh, one. I have one ODU undergrad who is at UVA currently, and another one who is applying for next year. And then I have uh, another ODU undergrad who finished at TWU already, and and they're all doing great. And so I I mean. I think those programs are wonderful. There's other programs that are great out on the West Coast that just um, I just don't know as well. Um, but I've heard good things. And then Brockport, of course. I like Brockport because that's where I came from. Yeah. Um, and then I currently work with three PhD students, and each of them have masters in adapted PE. And two of them came from La Crosse, Wisconsin, and the other one came from UVA. And so I see like the end of their training as well, and I think that it's high quality. Right. And then for just the uh, TWU for people who don't know that acronym, uh, Texas Women's University. Okay. All right. So now you you said you have three doctoral students um, who are who are working with you. Um, how would a potential doctoral student contact you who wants to work with you, or how would you recommend anybody who wants to go into a doctoral program recommend? Like, what's the process? Do they read your papers? Do they call you out of the blue, send you an email, stalk you uh, at a conference? Well, I'll tell you, so the, uh, 
I, I don't think I've been stalked at a conference yet, which is fortunate, but I'm sure it's happened to people who have been around longer. Um, I, I mean, I can tell you how I recommended, we have a master's student currently who's in a PhD, or who finished with us a year and a half ago, who's currently in a PhD program. And so the advice I gave her was um, initially reach out to the people that that are in the field, like the major players that you would consider working with, right? And so like there's a lot of different considerations, geographic considerations, financial considerations. And so, but but to me, the most important thing will always be clicking with the person you're gonna work with. And so if you're gonna dedicate three to four to five years of your life working directly with somebody, um, you need to at least be able to bear them, right? You, you have to be able to sit in the same room with them for you know, hours on end uh, talking about research and being uh, told that things you're doing aren't right, um, because that's kind of what the PhD program is like. And so uh, one of the things I, I told this per particular student is to try to get on the phone with all these people or get on Skype and see who they are. And so she, I think she reached out to maybe eight different programs and had conversations with the person who would be her advisor. Um, and you can tell quite a bit about somebody just from chatting with them or even how they schedule the conversation with you, right? Like if somebody says, yeah, I'd like to talk to you, I could talk to you, uh, you know, in a month and a half on this exact moment because that's the only time I'm not busy. Well, when you get there, they're still going to be that busy all the time. Right. Whereas, you know, if somebody makes you a priority early, you're going to be a priority throughout. Um, and so I, I think there's things you can kind of figure out from that process. Um, and, and yeah, to me, it's a personal process. That's how I selected Ohio State. It was mostly meeting somebody who I clicked with and thinking, okay, I can I can do this. I could do this with him. And then I was fortunate enough, again, that Sam Hodge was there. And I ended up working with both of them quite a bit. Right. So what's a PhD look like at ODU? What what kind of coursework do, they, do the students take? Is there a lot of crossover with non-APE, PE? Um, can you kind of describe not like detailed coursework, but kind of what in general should a student be looking at? Yeah, so so here we, we have these two different ideas that we try to do at the same time. One is the coursework, and then one is like the real, what we refer to as the real work or the research work. And so um, our students will take uh, a few adapted PE courses, but not many. And the reason is that they have masters in adapted PE. So it's not my job to teach them about adapted PE. It's my job to teach them about adapted PE research. And so I keep that in the front of my mind is that I'm not going to teach them how to teach kids with disabilities anymore because that's no longer important. They know how to do that. And so they'll take some adapt or one or two adapted PE research type courses. They'll take some special education research courses. Um, some PE research courses, and then general like statistics and research methods and uh, research design courses through our Educational Foundations program. Um, and then they, they actually do quite a few independent studies as well, and, and those are built for us to actually collect data and write papers and such. Um, and so that's typically the first two years. Um, it's 60 credits of course, what's 60 credits? It's 48 credits of coursework. Um, and then 12 credits of dissertation work, which is after a, a candidacy exam, which nobody knows about the candidacy exam before they enter PhD programs. I'm 100% convinced faculty do not tell students about it because they're afraid of it. So I'm not going to mention anything else about that. Um, <laughs> Keeping up with the tradition. That's right. Uh, but the other the other area is the, the real work, the research work. And so um, I 
we what we try to do here, and it's myself and Dr. Shiha Drew, who's our PE faculty. Um, we the first year try to include students on papers that we're working on and and research projects that we're working on for them to kind of get the feel of what working on research looks like. Um, what writing a manuscript looks like, uh, what collaborating while working on a manuscript looks like. And then by the second year, we're hoping that students are developing their own ideas and, you know, submitting an IRB to go collect some data. And we believe that prepares students to then, like, have their dissertation for the third year. And we do two article dissertations that they're expected to complete two different studies in their final year. Um, and so I think that progress has, has worked well thus far. We have our first two students um, since the program became active again, graduating, hopefully, you know, because nobody graduates when they think they are, but uh, hopefully graduating this May. All right. So you have um, a couple students graduating. How, how long is this like process to be expected? In and out in three years, four years, five, six, ten um, so the, the program is built with the, so the program is built so students can graduate in three years, but you can't, I, I don't think we can say students graduate in X number of years, right? I think, um, I think there are uh, hurdles that need to j be jumped and things that need to be completed. And for some students, it takes longer, you know, at Ohio, at the Ohio State University, students were taking three years and students were taking six years and you know there's no value placed on how long you take it's just a process that you have to matriculate through right and you were guided to go somewhere for a phd if somebody was, was footing the bill or saying that you know you should look for places that are offering funding how is that in ape grad school in general to your knowledge do you do you have funded positions? Do other universities have funded positions that you've heard of? Yeah, so so basically the advice I got was if, if, this, if the university wants you there, they're going to pay for you to go there. Um, and so, you know, being from New York, I took that very literally. And, uh, and, and I, think it, I think it to be true. And so here at ODU, we have graduate assistantships and we have, you know, a select number of them. Um, but the assistantship takes care of tuition and provides a stipend. And I think that's pretty standard around the country. I think a lot of the, the major, not, I guess they're not major, but a lot of the places where people get degrees in adapted PE or focusing on adapted PE, uh, they'll have some sort of funding to support students. Um, and again, like it, 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 you know, if they want you there, they'll find the funding for you to get there. Right. Are there, um, what's the job opportunities like? Have you done any like analysis of that in are the are the students that are graduating with PhDs finding jobs in universities if they want to go into universities? Yeah, so so historically, um, there have been more job openings than there have been graduated students in adapted PE, and you know we've been doing a bit of um, I'm just pulling up my spreadsheet because we've been doing a bit of data collection on job openings um, recently, and also people who are graduating, and so um, this year alone. Uh, 2019, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We've got 11 universities so far this year that have advertised positions that either the primary or the secondary focus are in adapted physical education, um, and that is less than last year, but not substantially less. Last year there was about 14, um, and then same for 2017. So we've been we've been collecting this data for a few years now, um, just to you know, make sure we know what we're doing and make sure we're not trying to like, you know, saturate a market that doesn't exist. Right. 
Uh, it's interesting. So how how many would you do you have data on how many PhDs are coming out like per year? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the data that we have, it's not exact data because I we only target universities that we know have a record of graduating people who focus on adapted PE, but like for say 2017, there were about 14 openings. We were aware of one, two, three, four, four, five, five or six people who graduated focusing on adapted PE. And so what, what, what tends to happen, one of two things will tend to happen. One is um, universities will fail a search and they'll research the next year, which is pretty standard. The second thing that might happen is you might find somebody who has a PE background who has uh, uh, a PhD focusing on PE, maybe their master's was an adapted PE, um, and they may take one of those jobs, or, or they may fill the job with a PE uh, faculty member. Um, right. So it kind of depends on the university. Right. But, I mean, that's that's a great way to start a, or revive a doctoral program, right? Going through, doing the research, and I guess that speaks to your bunch of questions, and you, you're finding answers. You're going through and tracking tracking jobs, tracking how many people are graduating, finding a need. There's more job openings than we're producing doctoral students. Let's produce more doctoral students. Yeah. So that's awesome. I mean, an an interesting thing that that about how PhDs and adapted PE have changed in the last maybe five or six years is that historically we had maybe four, five, six major players in adapted PE where people would go for their PhD program. Um, that was, you know, UVA or University of Virginia, the Ohio State University, working with Peretta and Hodge at UVA. It was uh, Marty Block or Lou Kelly, University of Michigan with Dale Ulrich, Oregon State University with uh, J.K. Young and Megan McDonald recently. Um, before her, Jeff McCubbin was there or TWU, um, again, with uh, a host of people who I named earlier. Um, I think those were the major players. And then University of Utah had a program with Hester Henderson as well. So that's six. Um, But recently, some of those programs have changed. Uh, I believe Hester has retired. People at TWU have retired. Um, Luke over at UVA is on his way to retiring. But other programs have been emerging. And so our program here opened just a few years ago. Um, There's a program at West Virginia University now, you could work with Andrea Taliaferro there. Uh, Georgia State University has a program to work with Deborah Shapiro. Um, there's a program at University of Delaware that's in adapted physical activity that's very similar with Sean Healy and Eva Brunsnikova. Um, University of South Carolina has Allie Bryan there who does motor development research and focuses on kids with disabilities. So if motor development and kids with disabilities is your focus, that's a great place to go. So. So there's a whole there's a host of different places now that have people who are being trained in adapted physical activity or adapted physical education. Um, so we've gone from like these powerhouse programs that have a whole bunch of PhD students to more of a disbursement, at least in my estimate, of where the PhD resources are for adapted PE. Right. Awesome. And I think that that's a great resource for anybody that's listening that wants to kind of start exploring ULICID, and that's. That was the goal of this to kind of get to list uh, list those um, programs to get some resources. So, well, nice post-it note, very yeah. good. Uh, so, can you uh, let's finish off with just a just a pitch on your program? What like if somebody was actually serious about working with you or at coming to Old Dominion? What's what's special about it? What you know? What would they expect? How would they contact you? Um, if they are interested in 
you know, pursuing it farther? Um, so pitching ODU, um, so first, uh, we are, we've had a few people apply to join us, uh, for the fall. Um, but our deadline is closed for this year. So we'd be talking about 2020. Um, and I think, you know, at, at all these PhD programs, the thing that's important that makes us unique is the people who were there. Right. And so, um, here our research team consists of really two um, PE faculty members, myself and, and Shiha Drew, um, and then the PhD students. And so we get to know the PhD students well, mostly because that's our immediate uh, research team. We don't have a huge group of faculty here, and, and that's a plus for some people. It's a minus for other people. Um, I think that if somebody's interested in the type of work we're doing, and you know, I've noted the work that I like to do, and it's easy to find on, on our website. Apparently, you navigated that and, and found uh, that somewhat embarrassing information that you had brought up. Um, but like reaching out is great. And so, uh, you know, receiving a phone call or an email from somebody who's interested in a PhD program, I, I love talking to people like that. I've been chatting with somebody on Twitter recently about adapted PE PhD programs, but I'm not, I'm not really one to sell programs. Uh, that's not really within my personality more. So, um, I think that it's more important to figure out who you click with. And so, if somebody told me, like, I want to do research on kids with autism and motor skill development, I'm not the person to work with for that. And I, and I know that about myself. And so I would, you know, suggest going and working with either Megan over at Oregon State University or Dale at University of Michigan or maybe Allie at uh, University or South Carolina, University of South Carolina. Um, if somebody's interested in, you know, intervention research, I'm probably not the person for that either. Um, but if someone's interested in looking at, you know, how or how PE experiences uh, are, you know, understood among people with disabilities, I mean, that's something I'd be interested in. And that's something that I could get excited about and like I could, I can contribute to. And so I think that connection, both like the personality connection, but also the interest connection is critical. Um, and uh, I would like what I've done before quite quite a few times is instead of recruiting somebody actively here I've tried to like push them toward programs that I think would work best for them I think that's what we should all be doing yeah and I think you you hit the nail on the head it's you know for students that are looking at you know doctoral programs go in read the articles that that professor has done look Mm -hmm. at you know what is the field? Don't push your ideas into their field and vice versa. Don't let a professor decide what you should be studying. You know, go with what you're passionate about. And, and I think you, you do the right thing and, you know, guiding people elsewhere if it doesn't fit. But I think this is a great resource for, uh, for doctoral students in general, uh, and just really appreciate the time and chatting and, being being off script. Great. Yeah, no, I, I like this quite a bit more than than this scripted conversation. Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll do more of this. So appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Yeah, for sure.